he comes out like on the on the lawn of the Capitol. There's nobody. There's like 13 reporters. There's nobody behind him. There's a little podium, and he walks up and says, "Okay, okay, I don't have a lot of time. Uh, I'm gonna run for president." And everyone's <laughs> like, "What? Who? Like, what are you talking about? You're Bernie Sanders, the crazy guy who's not even in the Democratic Party." Welcome back to I'm the Villain. Today, we are going to be talking about the very relevant topic of socialism right now, because I feel like that's just a huge topic of conversation in the general media and discourse right now. Mm-hmm. And so Kevin, actually, we're, today we're joined by Kevin Gustafson. Gustafson. Gustafson, damn. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> happens every time. I know. Kevin has his own podcast on socialism. He has another podcast on worker cooperatives. He's a lawyer in D.C. Who like There's all kinds of stuff. I'll let you tell us just about whatever you think is most pertinent for the audience to know about yourself. Yeah, so I am a lawyer who lives in D.C. working in the legal tech industry. I, uh, about a year and a half ago or so, decided that I've been involved in leftist politics for 15 years or so. And so I've experienced a lot of different things in terms and doing actual organizing, activism, protests, the whole nine yards. And um, I think I, after um, Trump getting elected and, 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 and kind of pulling back from some of the political work I was doing and going back into reading theory and kind of getting a f- better feel of things, I thought a way of um, the best sort of thing that I could do is actually just communicate what I know because I think a lot of people are coming to socialist ideas recently because of Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other people who are unashamed to use the word socialist. And there's confusion about what that really means. And though I'm 100% behind Bernie and, and uh, AOC, I think that it's important to distinguish what they mean by socialism from what socialism has always sort of meant. And the way I thought to do that would be to communicate in a medium that people are really enjoying and that is useful for long-form conversations. Because it's not... Socialism and socialist ideas don't easily fit in 30-second sound bites. It does take a while to... I mean, Capital is a really long book because it takes a long time to understand how the kind of thing really works. But if you really spend the time to do it, it's a, it's, it's incredibly insightful. So I thought, okay, I'll sit behind a microphone and talk to people and talk about things that I think are relevant, um, to kind of wrap your mind around, uh, these sort of ideas that you can get in a half an hour, an hour, you know, um, the longest episode is three hours, but it's talking about the history of the American communists and American leftists, which is a really important and amazing history that we just don't learn about at all because, right. you know, the education system is there to create the next group of workers who are just smart enough to run machines, but not smart enough to be able to smash them. And so um, the it's important to try to we the guy I had on the podcast can just riff about it for, for as long as we, we he would can breathe, I think. And so uh, yeah. it turns into a three hour conversation. But I think that that's that's useful. And when you have podcasts like that are very popular, that are long form, that's the, the way to do it. And so started talking to interesting people about about this. And um, I've been surprised at how many people have been interested in it. But it's a lo- led to a lot of really good conversations 
um, about important ideas, you know, it, things like climate change and, um, and um, just, and I think worker cooperatives, which is why there's a sort of the spinoff because um, people might be familiar with what the, the world's most renowned Marxist said like New York Magazine in 2005 or whatever is this guy named Richard Wolff. Mm -hmm. And he's got a, an organization called Democracy at Work which is really um, there to promote the idea of a worker self-directed enterprise, so like a worker cooperative, which have certain important features that, um, for me, connect really well with socialism. And so we decided to start a podcast that talks about worker cooperatives as a way of getting people who are interested in worker cooperatives interested in socialist ideas and people who are interested in socialist ideas to get interested in worker co-ops. So I got the two podcasts, The Sensible Socialist and All Things Co-op. How are worker co-ops different from unions? So that's really important. Like, so I, um, for a long time, the way that you had worker strength was to unionize. And, you know, Marx was all in favor of unions and, and the unions are a sort of direct way for workers to get together and, and have some power. Mm -hmm. But the thing about, at the end of the day, a union establishes and maintains the, the division between the owner and the worker, right? It it reifies the position that there is a difference between the the relationship of production between the worker and the owner, which is the basic class distinction. So while unions are great for organizing workers together and showing worker power in solidarity, they maintain the underlying problem of class division. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at um, a union as compared to a worker cooperative. A worker cooperative is when a business or an enterprise is owned and operated by the workers using democratic ideas you know, of one worker, one vote, which is very much different than bargaining with the owner and controller of the means of production for better wages yeah. or some, you know, you know, health insurance and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's a very different dynamic. And when I think of socialism, I think of workers owning the means of production, and that's what a worker co-op is to me. I, when I was in New Orleans, uh, I, I, there was a big sort of initiative in the lower ninth ward for uh, a group of like the community to come together and like purchase land and open businesses on it. Yeah. For, I'm, I feel like a similar reason, like, yeah, the, to have the, you know, the community members have a source of employment, a source of income, but also be able to sort of own and operate these spaces for themselves. Yeah. And for those who don't know, the, the lower ninth ward is the ward that was hit hardest by Hurricane Katrina. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that ties in. I mean, when you're looking at development, there there's a really important work done in in Jackson, um, Mississippi, called yeah. Cooperation Jackson, which is you find places. I think this would be uh, uh, really effective in places like um, places in Baltimore, places in D.C., you know, Southeast yeah. D.C., where there's a desperate need for development. But development usually comes in the form of passing out money to already very wealthy developers who develop gentrifying housing yeah. that pushes people out that used to live it there. It doesn't serve the community. It doesn't really develop the area. It really just gentrifies the area. And so one way that you can develop it is to say, we're going to create anchor institutions mm -hmm. that are run, owned and controlled by the community or members of the community. And there's different ways that, you know, cooperative enterprises come together. There's electric co-ops. There's where I'm from, you know, back in the Midwest, there's there are agricultural co-ops where everybody brings it into one central area and they all participate. So there's lots of different cooperative ideas. But the cool thing about worker cooperatives is that it gives people who are actually working at businesses the ability to, to decide what the business is going to do. Mm -hmm. And it makes people, I mean, you have, it, it ties in with so many important things like 
you have a huge amount of people with um, there's mental health crisis and opioid crisis and all those kinds of things. And it's tied in the fact that most people realize that like what they do for the most part doesn't matter and they yeah. don't really care. And all they're doing is getting paid and they just can't wait to go to the bar after work. And it's really yeah. depressing. And so if you give people the ability to own and control their business, all of a sudden they start caring mm -hmm. about how the business is doing and the environmental consequences of what they're doing. And are they going to move, you know, the, the, their jobs overseas usually if people put a vote whether or not they're going to lose their job, they're going to vote against yeah. voting their job away. And so all of the problems that we see with the destruction of the American manufacturing sector and, and, and American industry and all those kinds of things would be almost cured overnight by just this pretty simple change, yeah. uh, which I feel is like, democratic. I feel like even for you know the average person that is working like in the nonprofit sector, mm -hmm. you know, like... I feel like a lot of millennials, uh, me included, like entered the sector hoping to be able to make impact and are finding that um, due to just some real like limitations of the sector and, and of our society as a whole and um, how we treat the nonprofit sector as opposed to the, to the for-profit sector are finding that like it's not that simple. You know, you have to find a well-managed nonprofit or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the idea of sort of workers co-ops would also appeal to that group of people that, you know, feel like they could frankly like run something better or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or um, focus resources better. Yeah. You were remarking on like, like the person that like is just trying to get to the bar after work. And I was like, damn, I'm also trying to get to the bar after work sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the, the sad thing about something like nonprofit, you know, I mean, for a long time I, I, I wanted to do, nonprofit management got a master's of public administration thinking like, you know, yeah. could do something like that. And like, because it's like not for profit because profit is always like seen as the, the, the dirty word. And right. like there, there's something, you know, profit is the extraction of surplus value and that's inherently an exploitive thing. And you could talk about that. But the real thing is the real dirtiness is not having control and not having a stake in things. When you're just, when you feel like a commodity, when you, which is what you, your labor is in a capitalist market, it doesn't feel good, yeah. you know? And that small change of just saying, hey, like you're invested in this, this is, you're part of this, yeah. makes people change, you know? And you still might want to go to the bar after work, but you're going to the bar to celebrate how well the business is doing and that you're all in it together yeah. rather than or trying to, to get or away to talk from about how you can make it better with your coworkers. Exactly. Yeah. So the biggest are the basically the superstructure of organizing of socialism in DC and I think across the the country is Democratic Socialists of America. Are you yeah. part of that organization? I'm not part of Democratic Socialists of America. I I'm familiar with with DSA. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people who are in DSA. I, yeah. I've worked uh, with like the Stump Out Slum Lords and their Labor Caucus, and I, so uh, there's been some like sort of overlapping in terms of the people. I mean, when you're involved in the in the left in any any place even like dc like dc's big but it's also small yeah and so you tend to get to know people who are doing things and for a few years i was one of the organizers of may day so may day is the is labor day everywhere except for the united states and i think canada because it's international labor day and so it used to be in may day in the soviet union and even in china still on may day there's giant parades and celebrating international worker solidarity and all these kinds of things. And we tried to revive that a little bit in D.C. We would contact all of the different leftist organizations. And so there's a bunch of different left. There's the, the Party for Socialism and Liberation. There's Socialist Alternative, who just got 
um, a city councilor in Seattle reelected, whose name is Shama Sawant. Um, so she just got reelected, even though Jeff Bezos pumped $1.5 million into her opponent's city council seat in Seattle um, because she tried to do a head tax on, on Amazon. So there's socialist alternative. There is still the Communist Party of the United States. It's small and somewhat ineffectual, but there's a bunch of different um, leftist groups. And so we would organize um, them as part of May Day. So I've made a lot of different connections with different groups. There's the International uh, or the Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW, um, who have a long and great history, especially in the United States, but who are now um, not as sort of involved and as powerful as they it used to be. So, But Democratic Socialists of America is mostly what people, a lot of people's entry into socialism, I think, nowadays. I think, you know, with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez being endorsed by and sort of having affinity with DSA and other DSA candidates and the link between Justice Democrats and the Democratic Socialists of America, so the Justice Democrats being the Rashid Talibs and, and the, the squad kind of people. So I feel like my biggest framing for socialism is, as you said, like a Bernie Sanders or an AOC. Mm -hmm. But I know enough about socialism to know that the yeah. kinds of socialism touted by those politicians are not the exact same as sort of what might be thought of as like traditional socialism. Do you want to speak on that a little bit? Because I'm also unclear. There's always been a question in socialist ideas and in the socialist history about whether or not you can have reforms, whether you can reform your way to a socialist system, or it has, whether it has, to, it has to be revolutionary. And there was always a, a sort of debate as to whether or not you could just sort of ignore the states and just create your own institutions and eventually like get away from the system of capitalism and, and you know bourgeois states or if you had to like take over the states and use the state to like bring out bring in the next system and so the that's always been a, a, a debate and I think where you fall on that on that debate is is how you can frame this so if you look at the position of Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez they're not talking about fundamentally changing class relations. They're not saying that we want to expropriate businesses from individual business owners and give it to the working class. They're not talking about that. They're talking about important reforms to the system like uh, Medicare for all and like the Green New Deal, which are, which are good things. Like I would not, I'm not against those at all as measures to alleviate how crappy it is to live in the United States. The reforms that are proposed by the Green New Deal and things like that are really important things, but we learned from the first New Deal that you can do a lot of good reforms, but if you don't fundamentally break the relationship between who owns and controls and who doesn't, then all of the reforms that you can put in can be taken back. Like mm -hmm. a reform is not a permanent solution, it is a band-aid to a situation that is a gaping wound. Mm -hmm. And so for me, socialist ideas, you'll never be able to establish socialism until you have a fundamental change in class dynamics. Uh -huh. And that fundamental change is what you'd call a revolution. I feel like I've always perceived revolution as almost being synonymous with violence. Mm -hmm. How do you, it seems like you probably disagree, um, but have we seen an example of a revolution where a lot of people didn't die? No. The closest thing you have to revolutions that would be nonviolent would be something like the election of Chavez in Venezuela. And you see, and we've seen now what happens is that that project can be overturned by violence. The way I look at it is that revolutions often involve violence because those who in whom the revolution is against, at the end of the day, maintain themselves through violence. If your revolution is against the state, 
because you see capture as the state as the way that you'd be able to institute your revolutionary project, you have to fight against the army and the police and they have the guns and they have the monopoly on force. So they have the ability to use violence against you and they, they see it as legitimate. So you have to be prepared to essentially defend yourself if it comes to the point that you actually are assuming that you're going to fight the military. The better way to do it is to infiltrate the military and turn the military against it, which is how you have the closest thing to nonviolent revolutions as you can, where you don't have to fight a civil war. I do think, though, that it is possible to have a revolution without violence if you were to be able to provide a way of having overwhelming force before the other side would be able to use it against you. So in the United States, the only way that you'd ever be able to have a, a real revolution where you'd be able to like get rid of the Constitution or something like that, so you're talking like real revolutionary, is to be able to infiltrate the military yeah. where the military would defect. And essentially the military would pr perform a coup, yeah. right? And so that's, that's hard to think about in the United States because the, sure. the United States military is an inherently conservative institution. Do you see politicians like Bernie Sanders or, or AOC as sort of the embodiment of this, like, like we're all facing the contradictions of capitalism on a day-to-day -day basis, and now we're finally seeing some of these, like, regardless of whether, you know, like, they're true socialism or not, uh, or, like, democratic socialism, people that are branding themselves as socialists mm -hmm. on the big political stages is, is to me, that's like a, almost like an embodiment of the dialectic thing that you were talking about. I think it is. I think that a lot of people will see will see what Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and, and Bernie Sanders are talking about is is this idea that like you have libertarian right ideas of like right. no government at all, and then you have the sort of hardcore socialist I ideas of like just like want to no take over the government. And like, yeah, exactly. And the the interaction between those and the contradictions of both that fall away is something like social democracy where let's keep the innovation of capitalism and the, the drive and incentive creation machine that the drive for profits is, but let's also tax the system so that we can have universal health care and universal child care and all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what attracts a lot of people because it's, it's like a middle way that still seems very left. If you, look at the, if you look at the difference between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, I mean, it looks like Bernie Sanders looks like Leon Trotsky. I mean, it, you know, it's right. like, but he's really not. He's like Dwight Eisenhower. It's Bernie is to me very safe because Bernie isn't talking about, you know, Bernie's hardly talking about worker cooperatives, much less, you know, upending class dynamics and ending sure. the, you know, so it's a lot easier to, it's a lot easier of a thing to swallow because you start talking to people about how you want to take away people's businesses. And a lot of people in the United States go like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like that's a bridge too far. Like we don't want to, we don't want to do that. But you say we want to give everybody health care. And I think a lot of people in the United States are like, well, yeah, we should probably do that. We should probably have health care. Yeah. I feel like Bernie utilizes the sort of rhetoric of revolution a lot in his campaign. Like, like a revolution is happening mm. and, you know, it's of the people. And if I'm like, if I'm the one that's going to lead it, whatever. But like he, it seems like he, at least in his messaging, is like, yo, a revolution is happening and like it, it almost can't be stopped. It feels... If it is a revolution, it's unlike ones that we've seen before because it feels slow and it's working through like an already established system. Do you, would you agree with that? Can a, can a revolution be slow? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think really too, I mean, ultimately revolutionary change happens over the course of generations. So right. it's, it's not like some kind of, some actions are, you know, so the election of Bernie Sanders would be a flash in the pan. Right. But it would take 
the movement that would be behind the president, you know, President Bernie Sanders, that would really be able to actually make significant changes and to be able to establish itself as an important right. social force. Yeah, I mean, it, it there there is a kind of slow move. I even think Andrew Yang's UBI position is an example of like the dialectic kind yeah. of thing that you're talking about For too. Sure. Is that I mean, there's there's a lot of people who are recognizing that we are at the limit with the ecological crisis with another looming recession that's almost for sure going to come and because the system goes into repression between every you know seven to ten years and it's been ten years since the last recession so another one's coming just to put a downer on the you know the whole conversation but like for sure. prepared everybody like I'm not telling you to take out your 401k, but if you got a lot in it, it might be worth paying the taxes on it. But they, like, there, so there's all these, this recognition that there, that there is something wrong. I do think, though, that the strategic way to look at what Bernie Sanders and stuff like that is proposing is, especially in comparison to something like, like Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth Warren is the, is the law professor who's like, I got an idea to how to fix the tax system. And I got an idea yep. how to fix the healthcare system. And I got an idea that all we have to do is like implement this good legislation and everything and people and things will change. There's not a lot of talk about how you're actually going to get that legislation passed, especially with the intransigent Congress that we have. Yeah. And so Bernie Sanders, on the other hand, talks about how he wants people to get into the streets and that like he wants people to go to, you know, um, congressmen's offices and stuff like that, that there's a difference in the way that they want to implement these kind of changes, that they might have to both propose legislation, but how they want to get that legislation passed is different. And Bernie Sanders is taking a much more organizer approach, whereas she, Elizabeth Warren is taking a law professor approach. And I think that what Bernie Sanders is doing could be establishing a new kind of way of pol that politics around campaigns can be done. And because a lot of times it's just like the like look at the Obama campaign. I mean, I worked on the 2008 Obama campaign. I knocked on doors and stuff like that. It was like is empowering, and then he got elected, and then and then he bailed out the banks. It was like an immediate disappointment. Yeah. And so you you look at Bernie Sanders, and you know that that's not going to happen. And so the the but you look at Elizabeth Warren, and you think mm, she just said this week that she's probably not going to push for Medicare for all for the like the first thing. Whereas Bernie said it in the first 10 days, he's going to promote legislate, you know, legislation for Medicare for all. Yeah. So there's a serious, serious difference. And so, but they paved the way for working class movements of people to get out on the streets. I mean, I think Bernie Sanders could easily in the first hundred days of his presidency call a general strike, which would be very powerful. I mean, it'd be an amazing thing that for the president of the United States to say, nobody go to work today. And instead <laughs> of, instead of not, like nobody go to work and instead go to your local political office, go to your city hall. Go to your, you know, if you live in the, the capital, go to the state capital. Everybody go. We're going to have hundreds of thousands. We're going to have millions of people in the streets instead of going to work to tell the people that we can do this whenever we want if you don't pass the legislation. The Republicans will go, okay, like everybody went on the streets. Like yeah. we'll, we'll pass it. That's totally possible. And that's something that Bernie Sanders, it, if I say that that's something that I think Bernie Sanders will do, a lot of people go, eh, maybe. I think he's not afraid of it. Right. I yeah, I mean, and why I wouldn't he? And I think that other politicians would be afraid of that. Exactly. Elizabeth Warren, I think, would be afraid of that. She, you wouldn't know how to direct that movement. But Uncle Bernie, shit, he'd, he'd be just fine. <laughs> I, and, uh, like, you know, and there's, there's a lot of people in the socialist left who are very critical of Bernie Sanders. And it's really disheartening and annoying, like, to be honest with you, because it, I remember when I first got into socialist ideas, I was like 15 years old. 
it was 2003 or, <laughs> or like 2002 maybe. And I remember saying like, has anybody that's a socialist got elected, you know, in American history at all? Yeah. And I remember learning about this like th- third term congressman from Vermont called Bernie Sanders. And he had fucking white hair that went all over the place. And he had that Brooklyn accent, you know, yeah. and he like, but he was awesome. And I thought to myself, man, you know, what would it take for Bernie Sanders to, to run for office? And I thought it would take an incredible revolutionary change in America for that even to be considered. And then in, in 2016, I, he, he, like, I don't know if you, like, if you haven't, if you don't remember it, it's, it was the best introduction to a presidential campaign ever. He comes out like on the, on the lawn of the Capitol. There's nobody, there's like 13 reporters. There's nobody behind him. There's a little podium and he walks up and says, okay, okay. I don't have a lot of time. Uh, I'm going to run for president. And everyone's <laughs> like, what? Who? Like, what are you talking about? You're Bernie Sanders, the crazy guy who's not even in the Democratic Party. Yeah. And he's like, I think I have a good chance. And then like, okay, I got to get back to vote now. And that was it. Like, it's the coolest thing. Like, ser- anybody even listening, or even you guys, seriously, it's looking at it now, it's incredible to think that Bernie Sanders started by giving a press conference that nobody was at, that he was going <laughs> to run for president. And then, and then basically, we all kind of know, got screwed in yeah, 2016. And had it stolen from him. And yeah. to see it now, I mean, for, so for me, it... It was an incredible thing to see Bernie Sanders being able to talk about socialism and, and to to hear people say like I'm a socialist and you have young people who are like it's more than fifty percent who are at least anti-capitalist if not pro-socialist. It's that's a lot because of Bernie Sanders and so we as socialists, even if we are more revolutionary socialists and think that you have to have a more revolutionary change, should see Bernie Sanders as a huge benefit and somebody who is I think slowly starting the snowball. And it'll keep going as long as we don't, in our desire to be absolute purists and perfect mm. Leninists or some nonsense, because there's a whole religiosity that happens on the left. And I, and I think part of the, the little subtext for my podcast is a podcast for the rational left, because I think there's a significant part of the left that has lost its fucking mind. Yeah, and, I was going to ask you about that. If like so, that was really kind of more targeted at the tropes or the stereotypes from the right about socialism or whether that was more targeted at the people who are on the left, right? It's more about the left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, to be honest with you, the, the, I, 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 it pains me to admit it, but the, the name of the podcast comes from Jordan Peterson, mm-hmm. who, I, who I've, I'm very critical of for a lot of reasons. But he, he said, you know, there has to be somebody sensible on the left. There's a sensible socialist out there, you know, he, yeah. he said in some speech. And I said, yeah, like there is like I'll, I'll be that person, you know, because yeah. I do hear a lot. And I mean, there, I've been in experience like I graduated college in 2008, my undergraduate. And then I went to, to grad school for two more years. Then I spent a lot of time out and then I went back to law school. And there was a huge difference in terms of the campus culture. Yeah. And um, and I was like very. I felt very out of place. And these are people who, I mean, I went to American University. It was like progressive central, but it was like social justice progressive central. And my critiques of the, the, the capitalist system and some of the limitations I saw with Black Lives Matter and something like that, that were honest criticisms, just I think of the, um, you know, the limitations of social movements that don't criticize capitalism. I was, my only friends at my school were like the right wing kids who liked Trump. 
mm-hmm. because we were the only we could only we were the only ones who could like speak honestly and not get mad at each other. Yeah, that was exactly my experience as well yeah. in college because I I went to Swarthmore and okay. also a super progressive, super social yep. justice place. And it it does feel very alienating for mm-hmm. me, you know feeling as if there is this party line and that people will get really upset at you, you know, if you say things that you think are perfectly reasonable things to say. Yeah. And I feel like that is such an alienating thing for people who are not within your movement, right? Who who don't agree with you on like every single, you know, what if there's any nuance, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Like I don't are you guys familiar with the the grievance studies like hoax papers? Yes, they were on. They were on the Joe Rogan podcast. That oh, were they okay? Yeah. So like, not that um, I'm I'm not a Joe Rogan bro, but like I did see uh, their podcast because it was really funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, they 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 did a really good job where they they criticized the sort of postmodern positions that a lot of like like gender studies and there's like fat studies and there's the, the different um, what they would call the, the the grievance studies and there is a there is a philosophy behind them. And like they, they sort of understood it, but they've made sort of ridiculous conclusion papers. Wait, who's they that you're? Who's the, who you're Peter Bogosian? So it's it's Peter Bogosian, James Lindsay, and Helen Puck, Pluckrose. They wrote a lot of different papers and submitted it to to journals and papers. I mean, one of the papers took a chapter out of Mein Kampf and replaced with Nazi, feminism. Nazi Party with yeah. uh, with uh, intersectional feminism. Yeah. Uh, in terms of what they needed to do to like establish intersectional feminism, and it was from like Mein Kampf, and it was accepted and like said to be a contribution to knowledge. They did that to like show the flaws in the idea, and that they'll accept some like pretty outrageous kinds of ideas, uh, so long as it fits the the what amounts to a sort of religious kind of mold. It's difficult because the irony for me is that is that the I like the idea of intersectionalism. I think it's a very important idea to realize that like things stack on each other and there are different ways in which people feel the underlying oppression in a capitalist society. But that for me, the the intersection is actually the class dynamics because everybody is equally exploited at their job. They may not be exploited to the same degree, but they're all exploited in the same way. The solidarity that we can have with one another doesn't come from our ability to try to understand someone who doesn't have the same life experience that we do, because that's impossible. What it is, is to try to understand where we actually feel the same way to genuinely connect with one another. And the way that we can do that is the fact that we're all exploited at our job, Mm -hmm. that as wage laborers, our boss is taking money out of our pocket in the form of profit. And that we can organize, we can organize together around that principle, and in so doing, recognize the differences that we have with each other and how our experiences differ, and to genuinely sort of understand each other better. But we have to find a commonality to struggle with, not differences, because differences is a really hard thing to struggle together about. But unity is a very thing, easy thing to connect and have a solidarity movement built around. And so. Um, the, the frustrating thing for me, and I think the, 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 one of the things is like the CIA helped fund a lot of postmodern ideas uh, to be out there because it's, it's, it decreases the, um, the power of the more radical Marxist leftist position because postmodernism is fundamentally anti-Marxist. Can you just, can you just quickly explain when you, when you use the word postmodernism what you're talking about? I think what the general position of postmodernism is that there is no objective truth 
that the, the, the subjective experience is what is the framework for truth mm-hmm. and the subjective experience is, gain, is, is sort of uh, molded by and framed by things that are both in and out of your control. Um, many of those things would what you would constitute your identity. And your identity is essentially the self-constructed position of socially constructed ideas and modes of being and things like that that you mold together in the idea of you. And then you are the perspective at which truth comes and or d- does or doesn't exist. And the means by which you have it are not fixed. They may you may experience or understand truth through a variety of means. And so if someone says that the only way to find truth is through the scientific method, they are proposing a single means to truth, but that there are there are different ways of ways to truth. And that what really matters in terms of human organization are the power dynamics between people. So who has power and who doesn't have power? And how do they have power? And how do that, does that power create structures at which those power dynamics are reinforced? That's sort of how I see postmodern ideas. That's and like the best explanation I think I've ever heard someone <laughs> give of postmodernism. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really hard stuff because it's, it's very obscurant and it's very difficult and there is... There's like this lifting of ideas from a lot of different things, but then there is this fundamental idea that truth isn't isn't fixed and that the way you talk about something is really the way that is really what matters. And so for a lot of that's why there's this notion or this tendency to language police, because how you talk about something is ultimately all that really matters, because that's the only way that we relate to each other is subject to subject, because there is no objective universe Wait, did you know that's what postmodernism meant deandre i feel like i hear that word all the time and i didn't have that understanding of what people were saying no <laughs> i feel like it's literally just this like academic buzzword that people like to use but i never like looked into what it actually meant yeah i've heard postmodernism just like thrown around as like a buzzword but mm-hmm. not really actually explained so what um so it seems like from what from what you just said like the ways that postmodernism is inherently or is inherently anti-Marxist is one, it talks about um, power dynamics, not class dynamics. And it seems like Marxism is like really focused on class dynamics. Yeah. And are you saying that in sort of Marxism, there is objective truth? Okay, cool. It, it, uh, Marxism is a very, I think it's, it's, a, it's a sort of late enlightenment idea. Uh-huh. It also comes from German, a, a history of German idealism. And so it's, a, it's, it's its own kind of philosophy in some ways, but it bar- borrows heavily from, from Enlightenment ideas. And the right. Enlightenment ideas are wh- what you call modern ideas. So that is that there is objective truth, that reason is the, is the sort of best means by getting the, to that. The best way to utilize reason is by using the scientific method, and that the scientific method is probably the best way to realize fundamental truths. And so the scientific method is what gets you modern industry and the modern capitalist dynamics. So there's a sort of relationship between modernist ideas and and capitalist ideas. But socialism is a critique, in many ways, just a critique of capitalism. And so it's borrowing the same modern ideas. The postmodern ideas come after basically World War II, where Mm -hmm. modernism, even the dynamic between socialism and capitalism being the Soviet Union and the, you know England and or you know and then the the world fire that was World War II you have all these ideas that like these notions of truth 
are what is driving ideas of like Nazism and and Stalinism and colonialism. And so what we need is this escape from this notion of objective truth. And the way of the way to do that is to re go back into this notion of subjectivity right. and to say that there is that what really matters is like the individual and not the collective and that um, it, we need to focus on how an individual constructs themselves and relates to society and how society should therefore relate to individuals. Right. And it develops into this notion of this privilege idea where that's where the power dynamics is, is that in every power dynamics, there is the privileged and unprivileged. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the way it's sort of developed now in, in the grievance studies things is to say that we're going to, we're going to, as the women's studies department, focus solely on the, on the power division between men and women, when and where it exists and how it then fits into the way of intersectionality with the race studies you know, people, and they'll, sort of, they'll talk about the difference. But there is no class studies department at a, at a school because postmodern ideas fundamentally reject that class dynamics um, are a power dynamic that is basically important. That what's more important, because class is not immutable, what's really important are the immutable qualities. So your, your physical appearance, so your race, your gender, or your sex, your sex um, and some of those more immutable qualities. Sometimes religion is thrown in there, which is really weird to me because that's not an immutable quality. Uh, and you're you're much more likely to uh, leave your religion than you are to be to move into a different class. You know, yeah. um, it's not not very many people go from not being a business owner to to not working at a business and only getting money from owning a business. Yeah, it's not very many people. But to get back to the the thing, you can say democratic socialism. But what you really mean is what people would call social democracy. So social democracy is what you have in France. It's what you have in Europe, basically, right. which is a strong social welfare state with capitalist institutions. Yeah. So you still have, maybe you don't have 300 times the difference between what the, like what the top person makes and what the lowest person makes, but you have 150. So it's still very much there, the inequality is there, but the inequality is a bit less, the right. taxes and are a the, bit higher, and, and everybody has health care. The and extremes like, are mitigated a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and, like, and, and Sweden is, you know, a pretty nice place to live, and it's, it, it's a lot better than the United States. When you look at health care and things like that, Cuba has a better health care system than the United States. Mm -hmm. Cuba also has in guaranteed... What, in what way? It has lower infant mortality rates. Um, mm -hmm. and most of the measures, I mean, they have a potential, I don't know if it's a cure, but definitely a significant treatment for like lung cancer. Mm -hmm. I think because there's a lot of smoking and cigars and stuff like that in Cuba. <laughs> but, I, but so there's, there's a lot of innovation. Medication is much cheaper. It's, you know, government funded. School is government funded. Housing is government funded. If you look at, like, even just to talk about Cuba for a second, if you look at how many people, if, you, if a hurricane hits Puerto Rico and hits Cuba, two people will die in Cuba and hundreds will die in Puerto Rico. It's an example of the idea of trying to make a revolutionary change as compared to something like Venezuela. Where in Venezuela, you don't take away the people who, the, the owning class. Like you might have socialist reforms, but all you're doing is using oil revenue to fund social programs, which are good social programs and very important, but you're not fundamentally changing the class dynamic like you did in Cuba. And so while Cuba can maintain its revolutionary project, Venezuela gets overthrown in a CIA yeah. operation. Bolivia gets overthrown in a CIA operation. Chile, you know, you have a bunch of protesters, but the guy is going to stay in power. Bolsonaro gets elected in, in um, Brazil. Brazil. I mean, you have... Yeah. Uh, that's what happens. You know, Lula da Silva goes to jail and Bolsonaro gets elected. That's yeah. what happens when you don't fundamentally disrupt the class dynamics. Mm -hmm. At the same time the people will inevitably ask, well, what about 
the the t experiments in the 20th century. So what about the Soviet Union? What about China? Yeah. You know, and th those are legitimate complaints. There are things to be said that the two fastest growing economies in the 20th and 21st centuries are the Soviet Union and China. So you're talking about ec economies that are basically rural and agricultural and within 20 years are some in, are industrial superpowers. Right. It's a pretty incredible change. I mean, more people are lifted out of poverty in the Soviet Union and in China because of those socialist experiments in a shorter period of time than were England and Germany over the course of 200 years. So that being said, it's not like there, aren't, there weren't problems. And right. part of the thing is that the revolutionary, the, in Marxist ideas, it's where you get to the end of an economic period, where there's a new technology that disrupts the, the like sort of best and greatest example of your, the economic mode of production that you're in. And so it would be in the most developed capitalist countries that you, that you would see a successful socialist revolution, where the workers would be able to run their, their businesses because they've been running them for generations and they know exactly how to do it. Um, but where you see the revolutions are places like Russia and China, which didn't have a long history of industrial development. You have a tiny period of time in which you have some, but the whole socialist experience is basically just an industrialization project. And so you've never had the example of a large, modern, industrialized, technologically advanced economy attempting a socialist revolution where the workers would try to own and control the production and to do production not for profit, but to satisfy human needs. I mean, it'd be an incredible experiment to see in a place like the United States of America or in Germany or something like that. I mean, but here's my question on that is that I feel like so many people who talk about history, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like when you are, especially when you're a communist, but mm -hmm. also somewhat for socialists, there's not... I've, there's so there's a lot of failure. You're like you're right. There hasn't yeah. been one, and I think that a lot of opponents of socialism and communism would yep. say there's a reason there isn't one because it doesn't work, yep. right? So what? So like, why do you think? Do you think that those systems were like good in theory and just bad in execution? The snarky answer is that I I I can understand why the Soviet Union failed from a Marxist perspective. Or like the only way to understand why the Soviet Union failed is to use a Marxist perspective. Okay. So the idea that like Marxism has been discredited by the experience of the Soviet Union is is sort of ridiculous. Like so Marxism is really just a set of a framework of an it's an idea, right. a way to look at things. And it goes super philosophically in terms of like what is history and what runs history and you can get really deep in terms of those philosophical ideas. But the basic idea is you look at the material conditions, you, if you change the material conditions, the rest of the society will change. And that there's, a fund, there's been a fundamental relationship between who owns and controls production and who works and controls production. You've had slave societies, you've had uh, serfs, you've had workers. And the idea is to come up with a society where you don't have class division. So you end the period of history of human history in which there is these class divisions, which isn't the entirety of human history, because most of human history we lived in small clans where we all worked together and hunted and gathered and did all those kinds of things. So for the majority of human history, we've been cooperative. Then we dissect, dissected ourselves into these classes. So the goal is to like use that experience in, in the in development that comes with it, which is huge development. I mean, look at the things we built in the, in, in the period of class division. But to end that class division so that we don't have to be in perpetual class warfare, which is the idea. So the, the, you see changes in th these different modes of production, which there's been about three or four, when you have technological change. 
So when you have the Neolithic Revolution, you have a change from the old hunter-gatherer society into class society. And then you've had, you know, developments of like even just the wheel and plumbing and being able to use aqueducts and all these different advances technologically. And then science, you, with each of these developments, you have a, a different mode of production that relates to how those technological developments can be used to further enhance the general wealth of people and the standard of living for everybody. And so that's how you get civilizations that can grow and have huge populations and, all, and, and do that kind of stuff. So it's at the end of the, an economic system where you have the development of a new technology because there's always a contradiction in society and between people and everything. That's part of Marxist dialectical idea that there's always this conflict. And so you see everything in the sort of contradictions. So every system has its own contradictions. And when the contradictions get so much that they can't stand, there's a, there's a revolutionary change and a new system comes out. So if you're looking at Russia in 1900, it is technically a European nation, but it hasn't industrialized like Germany has. It hasn't gone through any kind of bourgeois revolution that's created a republic, so it doesn't even. It still has a czar, who is the who's the leader of the army, the leader of the state, and the leader of the church. It is the most backwards economy in Europe, and it is like 90% peasants, and like a 10% industrial working class in two major cities. So you compare that to Germany or England, where you have this massive production and empires and all this kind of stuff. It's just not at the end of the development of capitalism, it's at the beginning of it. But there's this whole idea, because you have Marx that's come in the 1800s, they're like, oh, we can just skip over the whole capitalist stage of development and establish socialism. And so what they tried to do in both Russia and China is to skip over the entire stage of capitalist development and establish what they would call socialism. But they're not prepared for it. It was just not the place to actually do it. So they did do things like try to disrupt the class dynamics, a lot of times by incredible violence, which is not usually a good way to maintain solidarity among people. You start just killing people or engaging in systems of terror, people aren't going to be your friend anymore. And it's going to be a lot harder to maintain any kind of establishment of power. Now, that being said, Russia has a revolution in 1905 and it gets a parliamentary democracy for a little bit, then has two in 1917. After the second one in 1917, the United States, Germany, uh, while they're all fighting a war against each other, invade the, the Soviet Union to put down the revolution and fund a, an army to reestablish the czar to fight against these people. So there's a bloody civil war that lasts years and kills millions of people. And the Chinese Revolution starts at the end of World War II, where there's this massive war against the, Chinese, the Japanese, and then a civil war between nationalists and, and communists. These are not the ripe places to start a new society. So essentially what I'm hearing is it, it, it is basically the execution, right? It's that they were not doing, th they were trying to skip steps, they were not doing things kind of in the proper way to really set themselves up for success. It was, just not the, it was not the conditions by which you would be able to have a successful project. And even with all of those things, you have this massive development and, the, and pulling out of people of massive amounts of people out of poverty. And you go from a society that's mostly peasants who are poor into a society that's a lot of workers who have a significantly high standard of living. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talk about how many people were killed in, in China and in, in Russia, and that's a legitimate thing. But nobody talks about how many people were saved. 
by the ability of the di distribution of medicine for free and all these kinds of things. And so it's very it's it's a legitimate criticism, though you can have an argument about how many people have died under capitalism in terms of war and starvation and poverty. Right. So talking about body count is not usually the right way to have the arguments. But um, you can still examine the, the Soviet project and the Chinese project from a Marxist perspective that says like, you know, the, there was an attempted revolution right after the Russian Revolution in Germany that failed. And so that's a really important thing to, to learn about and understand the consequences of. But nobody talks about that because what they, they want to talk about Lenin, Stalin, Mao, gulags, great, <laughs> you know, great purges, great leap forwards, and cultural revolutions, which are fair things that we should not bow away from talking about, but at the same time put them in the context of failed projects there were failed projects of capitalism while there was still while feudalism was the main order and they they've done they did some serious damage in colonial colonialism which is a sort of feudal and then capitalist project was a complete and utter disaster for majority of the people in the global south particularly so there are failed projects in in the development of social ideas and so things need to be put into context. And they didn't have the internet. They didn't have modern technology. So imagine being able to use something like Amazon and not have to pay for things and just have it be the uh, mechanism to connect what people want with how they get it without exploiting the shit out of people who are working in the factories. <laughs> It'd be amazing. So this, we're, when we're looking at technology, that is the disruptive thing when we say the capitalist system can't endure automation and you know machine learning because it doesn't it, it's not going to be able to maintain itself and it's also destroying the earth Kevin, thank you so much. Thank you. I feel like it's good to have someone that like knows this shit or at least knows more about it than I do and come and talk to me about it. I learned some shit today. Uh, Isabel's nodding her head because she did too. Honestly, the thing that was most mind-blowing to me was the postmodernism <laughs> thing because I have had actually two very contentious fights with two like close friends recently about this whole notion of objected truth and i now i like have a name for what we were talking mm. about and why i thought it was ridiculous that people had such a like did they issue. argue against objective truth well th i don't believe in objective truth and they were like you are a fucking asshole for saying that <laughs> <laughs> and now i'm just like okay well it's just i'm a postmodernist and they're not. You're a postmodernist. Yeah. There you uh, go. <laughs> anyways, Kevin, thank you so much. Uh, please plug your stuff. Yeah, so you can check it out, Sensible Socialist, uh, sensiblesocialist.com. It's on iTunes and Stitcher and uh, Spotify, all, all the that shit. good stuff. Yeah, and then um, you can check out the social media, though I am notoriously bad at social media, so just go to the website. That's where the <laughs> stuff is. Uh, and then you can check out All Things Co-op. That's at uh, democracyatwork.info slash ATC. Uh, that's also on like Stitcher and Spotify and all that kind of stuff. So um, All Things Co-op is just about worker co-ops and Sensible Socialists just about social stuff I want to talk about. So if you're interested or if you like the episode, check it out. Beautiful. Um, Kevin, thank you so much. If you liked this podcast, please follow us on or at I'm the villain pod on Instagram. Um, give us a like on Apple Podcasts if that's your thing. Shoot us an email at I'm the villain pod at gmail.com. If you hate us, like us, hate Kevin, like Kevin. Yeah. Um, Still give a good review. Yeah. But always <laughs> <laughs> only leave five stars or nothing. Yep. <laughs> Other than that, Kevin, thank you again. Um, thank you. Bye.